Welcome to the Revolution Podcast, a joint project of the Education Trust and New Teacher Center. Here we engage leaders in conversations around how we navigate these uncharted times in our schools in a way that truly revolutionizes the learning opportunities our students experience daily. In today's bonus episode, hear from teacher Crystal Seawood as she shares how she builds relationships with students through a commitment to truly understanding who they are and what that looks like in these constantly changing conditions due to the pandemic. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the Revolution Podcast. I'm Kristen Wendell with the New Teacher Center, and today I'm speaking with Crystal Seawood, who teaches humanities in Washington, D.C. Crystal, I am so glad to be speaking with you today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Let's start off with you telling our listeners a bit about yourself and your work. Teaching is my second career. My first career was a graphic designer. I came into teaching by happenstance. I had one persuasive student who convinced me one day and like wrote this extensive I like I I like dared her I was like I didn't take her I didn't take her seriously she was like you should be a teacher I was like mm, okay prove it and then the next day she brought me in this like exposition of why I should be a teacher and signed it and everything as if like she was the president or something <laughs> and I eventually used that as a reference when I applied for my teacher corps program in Arkansas. Fascinating. It's amazing. We always talk about the wisdom of children. And I feel like that's an example of the wisdom of one of your students who was there and saw in you that you would be a fantastic teacher. And we first got to meet you at NTC through our Revolutionizing Relationships webinar. What compelled you to join that conversation? And then what stood out to you? I think my specialty in the classroom is relationships. Uh, I like to to say I don't necessarily believe in the term classroom management that always feels kind of like indoctrinated to me. And I like to manage relationships. So I approach classroom management through relationships. And I thought it would would be interesting to kind of expand some of my ideas and have discussions about what it means to manage relationships in the classroom and the implications of that. And you've returned to school this year in a virtual way, as many educators across our country have. Can you share how you've gotten to know your students in this very different setting? It really hasn't changed so much from the physical environment, actually. I leave with vulnerability. So that's always been my strategy every year is to model vulnerability. Students tell us who they are if we provide opportunities for them to do so. So like at the beginning of the year, you have like your, you know, get to know you things. But the thing that I think I do differently and I feel like has been like my bread and butter is I will do the get to know every activity with them. And so I'll always lead with the vulnerability and eventually students will feel compelled to share. So that's been one a, a good way that I've gotten to know my students. I have a relational component to whatever it is I'm doing every day. I was doing a a poetry unit, and I was introducing a poem, and the poem is by Jamila Woods, and it's called Waves. The entry point, I always use like a relational component as the entry point into a lesson, a lesson, just like giving them a way to make personal connections. So I ask them a question like, how do you feel about your relationship with your hair? What are some hair care products that have worked best for you? And I have always defended 
my inclusion of questions like that because they've always been challenged, like from instructional coaches, administrators, like, okay, why is that questionnaire? So like, not only do we focus on standards and things for students, the objectives, but we also have to focus on like the affective objectives. So I always try to have a personal piece in there. And I taught much younger students, but I know trying to help students situate themselves within the world that they're reading about or writing about so that it's not, they go to read something and they haven't pictured who they are and who's showing up to that conversation. It's really powerful because you're inviting them to be a part of that. You're not doing English to them. You're doing English with them. You're reading with them and writing with them. And I think that's a powerful way of showing students that they actually bring a lot into the classroom that we need to build upon and utilize. We know that relationships aren't one way. You don't build a relationship with a student and it's just how you operate to them or you operate to their family. It's two ways. So what are some other ways that you help students get to know who you are as a teacher and as an individual and how you show up in the classroom? I try to do my best to humanize my interactions with them. So I try not to use divisive language sometimes. It's like, um, I'm the teacher, you're the student. It's it like reinforce those power structures. You can only email me. You may not do this. And like all of these rules, I try to just like remove them. I like to talk to them about my day. Before I ask them to show up in a particular way, like intellectually, I welcome like discussions about emotions. So I used to complain that students would bring all of their quote unquote issues to my to my space. I had to shift my perspective and and recognize that that was that was signaling that they were safe in that space. So a, a space where students feel safe to discuss their emotions and just their life experiences that's the kind of space you want to cultivate. Let's think about classroom management. And so we often hear educators and broader community members talk about disengaged students. We know that our school systems in many places are school to prison pipelines, especially for our students who are Black, Brown, Indigenous, and poor. How might teachers reframe disengagement or lack of compliance as feedback their students are giving to them? We have to start this conversation beginning at the term behavior. I think we might be missing a much deeper opportunity to explore your understanding of behavior because behavior signals this attachment to like cultural belief systems and life experiences. So we're all bringing our different opinions about what is good behavior, bad behavior. So I think if we just simply consider behavior as something that children do, it's a response. The behavior is a form of communication. So if you can somehow look at it from an objective perspective, just look at the inputs and outputs. What are teacher actions? What are student actions? And a lot of times I found I had my, my most challenging days where I felt the students weren't as engaged is it always goes back to my planning. When my lessons are strong, which reflects a, a lot of things, I noticed that Students aren't worried about time. They aren't worried about going to the bathroom. There aren't like quote unquote outbursts, side conversations. When they're truly engaged, then it kind of minimizes those behavioral responses that don't benefit the intellectual space. I think we also have to acknowledge that institutional policies 
and practices are rooted in anti-Blackness. It often shows up as like a very homogenous set of expectations for all students. But if students are negatively responding to these expectations, I remember, I think this is my third year teaching and I had transitioned to a new school. This is when I first got to DC and the school was the usual. So hyper surveillance and hyper forms of punishment for black and brown students. One of the policies that I just thought was, it didn't make sense to me. Quite frankly, I thought it was dumb. They were very adamant that students needed to enter the room silently, silently work on their do now. And I constantly got in trouble for not regarding that at all, because that's not how my students were set up. They wanted to socialize and do their their work. They want to begin their day like as a community. And I always welcome talking. Talking isn't a bad thing. I would always measure if my do now was rigorous or not by the the level of of noise. If it was a high demand of their cognition, I didn't have to tell them to be quiet. They would do it on their own because they realized that they had to cognitively show up in a way that required their silence. You shared with us on the webinar your experience of teaching students in Arkansas and then moving to D.C. and how different your students were. Can you share that story again of just what assumptions you might have gone in with, how you changed, um, what you learned? My philosophy has always been that the operative word is that it's responsive. If you just pay attention, students will tell you who they are. So again, going back to an example, a scenario in Arkansas, I remember this one day my sixth period, they just came in roasting each other every single day, every day. I would write them up. I would call their parents, but it it didn't stop the behavior. But it wasn't until I acknowledged that part of who they were as a unit. And other teachers had called me crazy, but my second year, I was moving desks around three times a day. I had a system. So the first class sat in groups. Another class sat in another way and another class sat in another way. Because as each day went by, I learned that it became more responsive. So them roasting each other every day, I would get mad every single day, just blah, 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 blah. And I, and I was like, you know what? I'm wasting energy. So what I did was I just let them get it out one day. I was like, I'm tired. You just go at it. I let them have the floor. I even let one of them go to the front of the room and he had his stage. What happened was once I just sat down, moved out of their way, I just naturally started to respond to the culture of that classroom. It's so nuanced. Not even every class is the same. So you have to have a keen awareness of the students, understanding their sensitivities as a unit and how they engage with each other. Like that group, despite my presence, had a high relational capacity. They have al- they already have established cultural norms. It's not the teacher's job to disrupt that. It's really the teacher's job is like, okay, let me fall in line and see how I can fit in here. And once I took that stance, my whole paradigm shifted in how I approach students. 
in Arkansas, like, um, it's yes man, no man. Or if you say a curse word, oh, it's like almost blasphemous. Like a student curses, like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And when I got to DC, I remember struggling my first six months, right? Because I tried to bring that knowledge of what I knew about my Black students in Arkansas to Black students in DC. And I had to let it go. Well, and it, it ties back into two things I'm thinking of. So one is having to know your students. And that means the, the child in front of you, not the group of students. There's the individual child and then there's the dynamics. And then also you make me think about that power relationship and that it's not the teacher's job to have power over, the teacher's job to empower and to be a part of. I'm laughing because my third year of teaching, I taught a split level class of third and fourth graders. And I had either six or seven pairs of siblings and cousins. It was a really small school. So I had six or seven pairs of siblings or cousins out of, I think, 27 students. So half my class was related in some way. And I remember having to learn those dynamics, right? So then you had the sister pair, the younger sister would be very, very hurt by the older sister if something happened, but I had to keep them separate. But then you had the brother pair who would go at it all day long and love each other even more deeply, right? But it's knowing like, okay, so these two, they can do whatever they need to do. And I would just be like, y'all, like, no, not right now. In five minutes, let me get through this. And then you all can do whatever you need to do with each other. But then the sisters, I had to keep them separate because I knew that the younger sister's heart was so soft that she couldn't handle it in front of all of her friends. Mm -hmm. And that's the dangers of applying one set of expectations to an entire group. And I think that 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 extends beyond racial identity. Yes, racial identity might have a role in how the group shows up in a space, but that is not the lens in which you should enter in terms of designing curricular or designing learning experiences for a group of students. Because I always like to play music. I'm like, okay, I'm going to play this rapper I'm gonna play that rapper I'm gonna play that rapper but then I noticed they didn't respond to the songs in the same way that my students from Arkansas did and then once I stopped making assumptions and deciding what they would listen to I asked them one day and they mentioned all of these these artists that I'd never heard of but it turns out that they were more local artists so I quickly learned that my group of students that I taught in DC valued local artists because these are people that they know. Many of our listeners are teachers, school leaders, district level leaders, and they may be listening to you and thinking, okay, what do I do next? Where do I start when I think about my relationships with my students, revolutionizing what those look like? So what would be your call to action for listeners? What, what is the next step they can take tomorrow, maybe next week or within the next month to begin to revolutionize those relationships with students? We got to get out of the student's way. I think we have to remember that you are not there to assert an authority or to control a space or to mold a space into what you want it to be. I think it's as simple as you have to understand that they already have relationships for the most part, like pre-established. You're walking into a set, not a, I mean, a set culture and you got to get in where you fit in really forces us to grapple with what responsive really means, like culturally, to be culturally responsive, is that, again, students will tell us who they are if we let them. That's why I, I don't believe in having things, quote unquote, planned out for like months and semesters and years, because is that 
truly being responsive. So if I have a lesson on the first day of school, I learn this about a student. The next day, I'm going to reinforce that and acknowledge it. I look for breadcrumbs every day that students drop about who they are, what they're interested in. The image of the breadcrumb is really sticking with me when I think about all the little tidbits that students drop for us every day. They drop them in their work. They drop them in their conversations. They drop them with their body language. And the, the idea of the, the role of the teacher and the school leader is to look for those breadcrumbs and follow them. And that will lead us into a deeper, more powerful relationship with our students. Like that is a very strong image. Thank you for sharing that with me. Crystal, thank you. Thank you for spending time in conversation with me, for sharing your experiences of connecting to students and authentically showing up with them so that they can show up with you to learn. I know that other educators will appreciate hearing and learning from you. Thank you for joining us on The Revolution Podcast, sponsored by the Education Trust and New Teacher Center. To engage more deeply in our work, please visit our Revolution Campaign website at www.newteachercenter.org.